Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Adam Murphy. This week, we are putting together a special program all about the science and technology of World War II to mark the 75th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. This show covers the science and technology of World War II and contains content that some viewers may find upsetting. They shouldn't just be thrown away as surplus scientific material, but the specimen should be given a dignified burial with identification, and I think it's the identification which is a puzzle really important. In 1944, the V2 became the first artificial object to pass what we know as the Kármán line, which is generally considered to be the boundary uh, into outer space, it's 100 kilometers up. So this arguably makes the V2 a contender for the first human object in space. You know, this is the power of knowledge, how you can hide something also in the plain sight. Who would have said that this orange solution is basically a goal? But there were a lot of things they didn't know. Uh, Oppenheimer estimated the casualties far too low. He estimated maybe 20,000 people would die at Hiroshima. It was more like 100,000. And later he said that 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 bothered him quite a bit to be so wrong. On the 1st of September 1939, German forces invaded Poland and started World War II. And just a couple of days later, on the 3rd of September... The British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. May 2020 marks the 75th anniversary of Victory in Europe Day, the day Nazi Germany surrendered and ended their part in World War II. The war would finish later that year in August after the atom bombs dropped on Japan. Science played its part in the war, as it does in everything. And for the next hour, we'll be looking a little more closely at it. Starting with... One of the most iconic images of the war is that of Ariel Carmen. 
combat dogfights and the men flying through the air. The Battle of Britain, which began in 1940, revolved around this fighting in the sky. And at the centre of it, to most British hearts at least, is the supermarine Spitfire aircraft. But just a few short years before, the planes were old-timey biplanes used for taking photos. How did we get to the Spitfire from there? I spoke to Craig Murray, curator at the Imperial War Museum in Duxford, about aircraft history. Well, it's, I mean, most of the the changes really come in the 1930s, but within the 1920s period, after the First World War, you have the Allies are left with an awful lot of aircraft from that period, but there's a lot of economic restrictions post-war, and also there's no actual threat. So really the main things that do change here are a movement away from wooden frames to metal frames, but still covered with fabric, as they have been already. But also the there's a much more of an advancement in aero engines. If they're not being weaponised, they're certainly performance and streamlining the aircraft has been improved upon. Aircraft have been rather restricted, uh, land aircraft rather, taken off from airfields have been restricted by what they, by fixed props. And it's not really to the early 1930s when the first viable, variable pitch prop comes in that they can, the aircraft and the ground become more efficient. What I mean by that is when taken off, it requires a lot of power for the engine. And if you don't have a variable pitch prop, you have to have quite a long airfield to take off. And what the variable pitch of the prop does is that it makes the engine more efficient at certain points. If you have it on fine pitch, it cranks up the revolutions per minute for taking off and when you're cruising you can put it on what's called course pitch so the engine's working in its most efficient manner but I suppose interestingly a lot of the developments come in the civilian field rather than the military field at this point and it's with flying boat racing basically you know the aircraft that can take off like the Schneider trophy is really this kind of thing but as things start to move into the 30s we start to see the move away from these sort of you have seen with the air race and a move away from biplanes into these monoplane designs, low-wing low monoplanes, because they're more efficient. And you'll start to see a movement into more metal aircraft. Certainly, in that sense, the Boeing company in the United States in 1931 were sort of ahead of the game militarily. They sort of saw the coming of the metal, or the metal-skinned monoplane fighter. So they built a bomber at the time, which was the first sort of metal monoplane and it was quicker than any biplane about at the time. And a few years later, there's another there's another one comes in which advances it further. And then they obviously have their famous B-17 Flying Fortress, which they come up with in, in 1935, which is very heavily armed based on the theory that a bomber should be able to always get through to the target as long as it's got enough guns to fight off the fighters incoming. And what about those more famous planes, the Hurricane and, of course, the Spitfire? And sort of concurrently at this time in Britain, you have the development of the Spitfire and the Hurricane. The, the Hurricane is slightly more traditional. It's got metal tubing frame and the rear part of the fuselage is still covered in fabric. But the Spitfire is a pure metal semi-monocoque fighter. And semi-monocoque meaning it's, it's a stressed skin over a frame as opposed to fully monocoque, which is essentially an egg, which supports its structure. The, the difference to the Spitfire is, again, it's all metal at the 109, but it's a pure thoroughbred of a fighter. A.R.G. Mitchell, the designer, who's also designing these supermarine aircraft that were winning the Schneider Trophy, he's not overly concerned with budget. He just wants to build 
a pure fighter, very, very difficult engineering design. It has this elliptical wing. Other people have tried it. It's been difficult to do or too expensive. Expense is often a big thing, but it's a pure fighter. It's best handled by experienced pilots, whereas the Hurricane is an easier aircraft to fly and is paradoxically more sturdy, even though it's partly fabric. It can, it can take a lot of battle damage. It can turn a lot sharper than, say, the BF-109. The BF-109, which shall be its main opponent during the Battle of Britain in 1940, uh, is not actually a pure fighter. It's It's been designed by Philly Messerschmitt as a essentially an ambush predator. It bounces aircraft from it comes down from height out of the sun and ambushes. Without these advances in air combat, the landscape of World War II would have been very different. So how does it move quite so fast? Well, I mean, you've gone, I mean, Aircraft um, technology moves massively quick from the Wright brothers. Even in the First World War, you're going from the Wright brothers, something that was essentially flying at walking pace almost, to fighters that can fly at 100 miles an hour in the space of maybe 10 years or so. So it has jumped exponentially, very, very quickly. Craig Murray from the Imperial War Museum in Duxford there. Let me tell you, that voice is hard to maintain. The outcome of the Battle of Britain was heavily affected by radar. RADAR, coined by the US Navy as an acronym of Radio Detection and Ranging, works sort of like how bats find their prey. A transmitter blasts out a signal, it bounces off incoming objects, and depending on the signal that's received back, you can tell what, if anything, is inbound. But how did it get developed? Back to Craig Murray. RADAR certainly... It's not a British invention, but it's a it's one that's perfected for its use by the British uh, to do what it's supposed to do. The Germans have come up with a thing for in use in the, the the German Navy for ships, but it's never really exploited as such. But the actual technology, the radio direction finding technology it comes off has been released around since the early days of radio development in the early 1900s they're using it to get sort of fixes on things usually for for weather for boats you can't really tell how far something is but you can get a fix on where it is if that makes any sense it's more we know it's there but the, the technology is so limited it can only be used for relatively short-term meteorological stuff like incoming storms or fog that's quite close what happens in the 1920s a guy a scottish physicist called robert watson watt who is with the met office but he works with the national physical laboratory and the uh, radio research section which they're kind of combined labs He's got an interest in radio waves and he develops a system called, I think it's called Huff Puff uh, for the MET system. And it basically instantaneously gives you a fix and the MET office use it to develop weather reporting for aviators so they can tell when storms are coming in. So he has this. After, I think it's in 27, Watt, who's Watson Watt, the um, the labs of the Met Office and National Physical Centre are amalgamated into the this new lab, and he's sort of put in charge. And he takes on this guy called Alfred Wilkin in 1931, and they run a report based off of this that aircraft nearby cause this fading in the signal it's basically the, the strength comes and goes so you get that fade, which is a bit irritating if you listen to the radio the sound comes in it comes out it drops out it distorts and clips and so with these sort of three things going on they've kind of got the basis for something you can work on radar because even back in the 90, early 1900s they realized that metal reflects radio signals and the fact that aircraft being present in an area is distorting a signal is 
this idea that something there's there's something there. How does that translate to a full military sensing infrastructure? Well, like with all good spy stories, it starts with a death ray. In 1934, the Tizard Committee, who are basically there to look into research for air defence, because the theory up to then, and something that was put forward is the bomber will always get through, can't really defend against because we don't know when they're coming, etc., etc. And in 1934, the RAF ran a big exercise with some 350 aircraft to split into two. One lot would be the bombers, one lot would be the fighter defenders. And the only the only information we get be from observers on the ground reporting incoming raids. And what they found was like 70% of the bombers could hit London without even meeting a fighter. So this wasn't good. And there was also rumours going around at the time this is where the Tizard committee start contacting Watson what that there was this rumors of a death ray could be produced using radio signals. Now, anybody with a working brain pretty much knew this was bunk. It was just utter nonsense. But the RAF, the Air Ministry, and the Tizard committee were like, well, we may, we need to check this out. Because if there is anything in it, you don't want the Germans having it. Because if they do have it, they're going to knock out air fighters as their bombers come in, you know, and, and vice versa. So they thought, well, well, we'll at least run it through science. Let science decide if it's bunk or not. Wilkin is given the task by what's and what to have a look at it. And pretty much quickly turns as nonsense. It'll never work. But I tell you what it does do the radio waves, you can detect incoming objects. And this is reported back to the Tizard Committee, like, yeah, thanks for telling us. We kind of knew that we, we hoped what you'd say was that the death ray thing was bunk, and it is, but we like, this is interesting, what you've got here on incoming things. So with a new potential way to turn the tide in their favour, it was a matter of investing heavily in the science of it all. 1935, they've got something, they can spot something coming in at 100 miles out, uh, a little bit later in 36, they've managed to get the towers working so they can actually determine height of the incoming raid as well. And it's not until 41 you have these sort of rotating radars we think of now that can read inland. As it turns out, because the Germans rule over France relatively quickly, they're basing their aircraft at Calais. So something they thought would be coming from a long way off originally is now coming from 20 miles across the channel. I always like to think of it as being a bit like the internet is envisaged by the US military in the 1960s. It has no centre that could be knocked out. I mean, this is the applies to the radar station. Pilots, by, by instinct, don't fly near to pylons. It's a scary thing because there's wires and that's just asking for trouble. And also bombing them is very difficult because they're a lattice work tower and explosions tend to come out. So... It's very hard to destroy them. Even if you do manage to destroy them, the one the neighbouring station can take over its sweep, so they compensate for each other. So it's a nigh-on impassable task for the Germans to remove the system, coupled with the fact they don't fully understand what it does, and they don't really get the radar is picking them up. They just don't seem to get the radar thing at all. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for your audio and video productions. Thanks to the power the Allied forces had in the air and the radar on the ground... 
The Germans never managed to break the British defences permanently and lost the Battle of Britain. But the Germans were making their own plans on the weaponry front. They were working on rockets, weapons of terror that could be fired from a distance and be trusted to find their target. These were the vengeance weapons. First the V-1 rocket, which was nicknamed the Buzz Bomb because of how it sounded, and later the V-2 rocket. These weapons have an interesting beginning and left an interesting legacy behind them long after they stopped being used. I spoke to Rebecca Charbonneau from the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at Cambridge University about these early rockets. In the early 20th century, there were several hobbyist rocketry groups, which were founded all around the world, but most notably in the US, Germany, and Russia. And this happened quite early on. 1898, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, a Russian school teacher, first proposed the use of rockets to explore space, and he became the first to prove that it was mathematically possible and suggested the use of liquid propellant, which was quite a novel idea. Um, Up until the 20th century, it had been largely a solid propellant um, rockets that had been used in warfare. This idea of using a liquid propellant rocket was tested for the first time in 1926 by Robert Goddard, who was an American physicist who launched the first successful liquid propellant rocket. It only flew about 12.5 meters high for about 2.5 seconds, um, which is not successful by our standards, even for just model rocketry. But nonetheless, this set the stage Um, for the space age, right? Um, And then that can take us back to Erwin Oberth, who uh, in 1930, he and his small group successfully launched their own uh, rocket, uh, uh, what they called a Kegelsusse, which was a small cone jet. Um, And assisting him with the project was an 18-year-old man, which uh, is Werner von Braun. But this was all on the American stage. What were the Germans working on? In 1937, the Pinemunde rocket group Uh, which included people like Oberth and von Braun, was assembled at the start of World War II. Their mission was to develop new weapons of war, which included the A-4 rocket, um, which we now know as the V-2 rocket. And that was built and launched under the directorship of Werner von Braun. Now, the V-2 rocket was meant to be launched from Germany in order to decimate cities, right, such as London. But the rocket was more a weapon of terror than efficacy. It was scary largely because of its unpredictability. Because the V2 traveled faster than the speed of sound, it couldn't be heard until it landed. So this was, of course, terrifying. However, uh, since its deployment towards the end of the war, the technology wasn't effective or powerful enough to make a major difference in the outcome of the war. In fact, historian Michael Neufeld says that many more people, um, prisoners in the concentration camps tasked with making the rocket, actually died while making the rocket than who died as a result of its use in war. But, you know, nonetheless, it was still an impressive piece of technology. In 1944, the V2 became the first artificial object to pass what we know as the Kármán line, which is generally considered to be the boundary uh, into outer space. It's 100 kilometers up. So this arguably makes the V2 a contender for the first human object in space. After the war, the Americans took in lots of former Nazi scientists to have them work on American scientific projects. This was called Operation Paperclip. One of those scientists was Werner von Braun. Von Braun and his group were moved to Huntsville, Alabama, 
where he led the U.S. Army's rocket development team at Redstone Arsenal. And this effort led to the development of the Redstone rocket, which had a, a dual role in the United States. You know, it was used for the first live nuclear ballistic missile tests conducted by the United States, but also it was the rocket that made Alan Shepard, astronaut Alan Shepard, the first U.S. astronaut to reach outer space. He actually became kind of popular in the public eye. He actually had a role in a Walt Disney film, Man in Space, Von Braun. There he is. Um, and several other German uh, former Nazi scientists are in this Disney film um, uh, talking, uh, trying to educate people with little animations in the background on, on how rocketry works, how space exploration works. There's even a case actually to be made that he is um, part of um, the reason why Stanley Kubrick's uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey um, space station looks like that, because uh, in the 50s, Von Braun wrote a popular um, article on um, artificial gravity and space stations. And so he's like fundamental also in our public understanding of space and space exploration. That means Von Braun and even to an extent the space race have some ethical issues at their foundation. And that should really be considered. So Von's, Von Braun's story is an interesting one, and it's one that raises more questions than it answers, right? How do we as historians handle a figure who, you know, inarguably achieved great things, but also participated in horrendous ones? You know, methodologically, this can be especially tricky because human beings often try to take control of their own narratives, right? We might ask ourselves, you know, did Von Braun use the Nazi party's power to help further his own goals, you know, trying to ignore their acts of terror, you know, or did he actively support their mission? Um, was he an anti-Semite? Um, or was he a victim of sorts, you know, who was forced by threat of violence into working for the German state? It would be simple to write off the accomplishments of von Braun by claiming he was a Nazi or an amoral person with one singular goal he aimed to achieve regardless of the cost. You know, or alternatively, we might be tempted to entirely dismiss his involvement in the war as being forced upon him and instead choose to venerate his role in the space race. But I would argue that neither of those characterizations do us much good. You know, history is most valuable when we get our hands in the muddy reality of human existence, you know, with its uncomfortable juxtapositions, tragedies and cruelty and attempt to understand why people made certain decisions. Rebecca Charbonneau from the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at Cambridge University there. And as she was saying, we have to consider the ethics of these things. And a lot of science was carried out during World War II, and a lot of it was groundbreaking, but a lot of terrible things were also done in the name of science as well, especially the experiments that were conducted on unwilling people in the concentration camps. I spoke to Paul Winding, Professor of the History of Medicine at Oxford Brookes University, about these experiments and the work he does. Himmler regarded the concentration camps as a really a resource for human experiments. And it was a resource which he developed throughout the Second World War, and really went right until the end of the war. And one type of experiments were infectious disease experiments. And uh, they were really to try and find preventive immunization other types of research work was for military purposes. And again, in the concentration camp of Dachau, there were experiments on aviation on low pressure. 
so that fighter pilots who had to do maneuvers for rapid descent and so that they shouldn't black out. The question was what the reasons for blacking out was. So low pressure experiments were done on prisoners and these prisoners were taken right to the point of death. And so the processes of death were grimly studied in these pressure chambers. And then the bodies were dissected, brains were taken for research by German brain researchers at that time. Or there were cold water experiments, hypothermia, what would happen if a fighter pilot bailed out into the channel into freezing water. These experiments were not only on concentration camp prisoners, they were on psychiatric patients who were children, for example. Uh, child psychiatric patients were also put in pressure chambers or they were subjected to immunization experiments. There would be deaths caused by the experiments, then the bodies would be dissected. We can see with the Mengele twins, these were twins who were um, collected from the end of 1943. Mengele experimented on a, a number of Sinti and Roma twins. Some he even killed because of their different colored eyes. And so it's been important to work out these different groups, who the persons were and how many survived in order to get a more precise figure, and in order to be able to identify each person as a named person and see what they then wrote about their experiences and what the experience was like for the uh, experimental research subject. How do you do that? Put names to experiments carried out on people more than 75 years ago? It's a monumental task. For some experiments, there are the actual research records, so that for malaria experiments in in Dachau, um, although the SS at the end of the war ordered all the experimental records to be destroyed, in fact, some of the prisoners kept the research records as many as they could. They hid them and kept them because they, they were convinced, firstly, that each person should be identifiable and secondly there could well be a trial of the um, key perpetrators so that they needed evidence. We have diaries with the research results being done from uh, Buchenwald concentration camp and two of the diaries which were meant to have been destroyed were in fact found. And the other great source is the Compensations. Very often the compensation application was unsuccessful. The Mengele twins were always turned down until the mid-1980s. The federal German finance ministry always said, oh, that wasn't a human experiment. You were just being measured. But still the testimony of the person from the twin block is an important testimony. So we have a named person that we can collate the named testimonies to see how many there were. And so there is a very, very large number of testimonies and records of these experiments, um, which simply um, have to be, should be collated. And that's one of the things I've been trying to do. I work with roughly 30,000 testimonies from the time, try and uh, reconstruct them in terms of what's known about the experiment. So you have to put the testimony into an experiment. Which one, which one can document. And so you try and turn anonymous numbers of victims into named persons. 
And a task like this isn't easy. There are bound to be roadblocks. One difficulty is the idea of patient confidentiality. Because some archivists think, oh, it's medical, therefore you cannot divulge the name of the person. I think that's a, a mistake because the victim was perfectly healthy before the experiment, and the experiment is a form of violence, gratuitous violence that was done, and one shouldn't treat it as serious medicine. One needs to treat it as a an injury inflicted for ideological purposes, just as if somebody is being beaten, so that Holocaust victims, it's regarded as perfectly acceptable that they are named. And my view is that the victim needs to have primacy and it is really irrelevant who their descendants may or may not be. They should be named. The experiences which they underwent should be documented. Particularly if they were killed, it's important that the documentation is there. That's the least that can be done to commemorate them as named persons. That they should have the dignity of being a person rather than a research object. So the great roadblock is ironically confidentiality. And I actually think that protects the perpetrators more than the victims. Last August, I was sent a list of brain specimens in the Frankfurt University Neurological Institute. And I noticed, oh, two of these specimens have got the same number as the specimens that were sent from Warsaw in 1940. And I could actually find the brain autopsy reports in the German military archives and trace these brains all the way through to the um, Frankfurt uh, Neurological Institute so that the brains were taken out of circulation for scientific purposes. Um, they were in what was called the show collection. And that's not the only incident where we found body specimens of persons killed in the war uh, kept in museums or scientific collections. And it's really important, these body parts, they offer really a window back into the person who was killed and their life and their, the identity of, it's very important on the one hand to look at the, to reconstruct the identity of the person, who were they, how come they came to have their brains kept by the German military and the occupation on the one hand, and on the other hand, what happened to the body parts scientifically? Why was it that the Germans during the war and, at, and in the post-war period were perfectly content to hang on to these specimens in large numbers and to say, oh, well, the killing and the retention of the specimen has got nothing to do with the, um, with the Nazi aims, which is why the person died. And I think that's very questionable. And then there will be the issue of appropriate commemoration of the person, that they shouldn't just be thrown away as surplus scientific material, but the specimen should be given a dignified burial with identification. And I think it's the identification which is above all really important. One thing you often hear when reading about this topic is that a lot of terrible things were done 
at least some useful science came out of it. There was some good done in the midst of all that evil. Would that be an accurate assessment? This isn't normal science in any way. This is science being done under extreme circumstances for ideological reasons. And this is also an ethical science. So we have first issue is, can this actually be correct science? Can it be good science when you might have persons being killed, but there are prisoner research assistants who are often sabotaging the sort of research that was went on. So that one issue is sabotage. The second issue is the stress on the actual victims. The third issue is there is a faking of results. In order to please the Nazi high-ups like Heinrich Himmler and so on, fake uh, graphs and fake statistics would be constructed. On the whole, it tells one a lot about Nazi atrocities and the exploitation and persecution. It doesn't really tell you very much about science, and it really is a lesson in how not to do science. Paul Weindling from Oxford Brookes University there, and I think we can all agree just how important his work is. Hello, you're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Adam Murphy. And this week, we are bringing you a special show about the science and technology of World War II to mark VE Day. Now, thankfully, efforts to put an end to World War II were underway. In Britain, one of those avenues was breaking the German ciphers. The code they used was called Enigma. Enigma was a tough nut to crack. Complex and constantly changing, not only did it change every day... It changed every time you typed a key. So E would become Q with one keystroke and then S the next. So how did it work and how do you break it? I spoke to mathematician and Enigma expert James Grime. The Enigma machine was actually invented by a German engineer called Arthur Scherbius. He invented it in 1918, a little bit too late for World War I. And he would sell these machines to businesses uh, who want to send secret information And then the military started to use them as well. It's wood, it's steel, but it's about the size of a typewriter. It has a keyboard. And when you type on the keyboard, your code letters actually light up. There's a second set of letters. And so when I press a letter like T, then it's going to light up a code letter, maybe W. The Enigma machine was not dissimilar to a typewriter. The code was contained in three wheels, which you chose out of a possible five with 26 starting positions and some wires on the front and a plug board, just to add a little extra complexity. And you had to sit down and set that up each morning. For the Germans, they would have a code book. And every day, it told you how to set up the machine for that day. Without that key sheet, you won't know how to use the machine. So altogether, we have three wheels to put in the machine, their position, these wires at the front... And the total number of ways you can set up the Enigma machine is a large number. It's 159 million, million, million possibilities, which is far too many for a code breaker to check. And it changes every day, which is the hard thing about it. The British code breakers and the Polish code breakers, they were very aware of how it worked, but not maybe the details of the wiring inside the machine. Uh, And that's when the Polish 
were actually able to work out the wiring inside the machine without ever seeing the machine itself. Just from the codes, they were able to deduce all the wiring inside the machine and then build their own. So how did the British go about cracking it? So the British, thankfully, they had a kind of a head start because they saw the Polish methods. The Polish passed their information to the British. But the Polish method was based on a, a flaw in the German procedure. If the Germans change their procedures, that method won't work anymore. So that's where Alan Turing comes in. Alan Turing had a, a different method for breaking the Enigma code, which was based on the flaw in the machine itself. When you're using the Enigma machine, if you press a letter like E, and if you kept pressing the letter E repeatedly, it keeps changing the code. This is one of the reasons why Enigma is so hard to break. E might not be the same if I keep pressing it over and over again. But there's one letter that it will never become, and it will never become itself. It's not much of a clue. It is a flaw in the machine. So what they can do now is they can try and guess a word that might be in your message. So what the Germans would do every morning is they would send a weather report. So you can use a phrase in that report. Let's use the word weather, maybe wetter in German. So if I can find where that word fits in the code, I can now start to work out the correct position of the wheels that makes that bit of code say the word weather. It's a guess, but using that guess, we might be able to break the code for that day. They could speed it up by building these very large bomb machines, bomb machines. And these were like simultaneous Enigma machines, like 12 simultaneous Enigma machines. And it was actually a process of elimination. It was faster to reject the incorrect settings than to go looking for the correct and you could find the settings on a good day in under 20 minutes. There was something else at the facility where Enigma was cracked at Bletchley Park. An early computer called Colossus, which you could call a forerunner of the computers that we have today. Colossus, people may have heard of Colossus, and it's another code-breaking machine that was at Bletchley Park. Colossus was built to break a different code machine that the Germans were using. It was a machine called Lorenz, and this machine, even more difficult than Enigma, was used by the top generals of the Nazi party, and we broke that code as well. Enigma has three wheels inside, and they turn as it goes along, and it changes the code. Lorenz had 12 wheels inside. So if you're talking about how many possibilities, well, Enigma has a, a number that's something like 20 digits long. The number of possibilities for setting up Lorenz was a number that was 170 digits long, which is a ridiculous number. It's more than there are atoms in the universe. If each atom in the universe was itself a universe, there would be more Lorenz settings than there are atoms in a universe of universes of atoms. And it's too many to check. And Colossus is arguably the world's first digital computer, if that's true, if the Colossus machine can be considered the world's first computer, then it was built in secret at Bletchley Park to break this top-secret German code. And what happened to Colossus and all this work once the war was won? 
after the war, there was uh, an order from Winston Churchill to say, destroy all the material. So they had a big bonfire. They burnt all their work. Uh, the machines themselves were destroyed. This story was secret under the Official Secrets Act uh, for 30 years. Many of these code breakers were not allowed to tell their friends and family some died without their family ever knowing what they did during the war. And then in 1974, one of the people who worked at Bletchley Park, who wasn't a code breaker, but he was in charge of uh, sending the information out to you know, the generals in the field. He wrote a book and the secret came out and it was a bit of a controversy at the time because they weren't supposed to be telling these secrets, even though this is 1974 we're talking about. Mathematician James Grime there, and at least finally, the work they did and the importance of it was revealed. Now, it would be remiss to talk about the science of the war without talking about the science that put an end to it. World War II ended on the 15th of August 1945, after two atomic bombs had been dropped on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nuclear historian Alex Willerstein from the Stevens Institute of Technology, New Jersey, told me why the Allied forces decided to pursue something so destructive. After the discovery of nuclear fission, which is to say that you could split uranium atoms with neutrons, uh, a lot of scientists in many different countries started to wonder whether you could apply that to weapons purposes. And it wasn't really until 1942 they got uh, a copy of a report from the United Kingdom where British scientists concluded that it was in fact very doable for a country like the United States to produce nuclear weapons uh, relatively quickly and relatively cheaply. And that led to the beginnings of the Manhattan Project. The other side of it is they were very afraid at the beginning that the Germans might be building an atomic bomb. And any indication that an atomic bomb was buildable, they not only saw as an indication that they could do it, but that the Germans could be doing it. And they were assuming, both because nuclear fission was discovered in Germany and because they figured it was safest to assume the worst, that they were behind the Germans. Uh, it later became known to them that that wasn't the case, but not until much later. All atoms have a core called a nucleus that is full of protons and neutrons. But sometimes this gets too full and it makes the atom unstable. That kind of atom is radioactive. And over time, it will break down into more stable elements. And every time it does, it will release a tiny bit of energy. But how do you go about taking that tiny amount of energy and turning it into a bomb that can level cities? So to build a nuclear bomb, uh, the most difficult part is having the fuel for the bomb. So this is what they call fissile material. It's a high enough concentration of atoms that can at will be made to split and split other atoms. So this is enriched uranium or this is uh, plutonium. So both of these made up the bulk of the work on the project, both the spending and the effort and the labor and the time was in making the facilities that would be able to produce this fuel for the bombs. And you also needed a lot of scientists. Pretty early on in this effort, the head of the military, General Groves, was looking for a scientist who could run the whole enterprise and be his, his sort of right-hand man. And he ended up choosing J. Robert Oppenheimer. This was a 
theoretical physicist at uh, University of California, Berkeley, also taught at uh, Caltech. And he was an unusual pick because he had never done any kind of large scale management project before. That's not the kind of scientist he was. He was a chain smoking cigarettes while drawing equations on a blackboard in a, in a small room with 10 students kind of scientist. And, uh, but he ended up being quite able to the task and quite accomplished at it. They had quite an array of, of scientific luminaries, uh, both American and uh, foreign involved on the project. And this was part of its success was having sort of the cream of the crop, not only of the United States, but the cream of the crop of many European countries, uh, including many people who had fled the Germans and had very strong vested interests in making sure that the Germans did not win the war or get an atomic bomb before the Americans did. Just the concept of radioactivity had only been discovered a few decades prior by Marie and Pierre Curie on their lab bench. So did the scientists working on the Manhattan Project really understand just the scope of what they had to do? They were entering into this entire field with very little information about how to do any of this work on an industrial scale. And so their task was to go from these basically proofs of concept to full-scale application in basically one step. And that's highly unusual, both for scientists uh, and for industry. And so it turns out, for example, that if you scale up the reactors the way they did, uh, they'll work for a while and then they'll sort of stop working. So this is the sort of difficulty. And this most of these questions, these scaling questions, they're exactly what would happen if you tried to scale anything up in that amount of time. They did not know the health effects uh, completely of all of these materials. So they're simultaneously trying to develop, say, safety guidelines while developing new artificial substances that have never been created before, for which they do not know the health effects of them. So they're doing a lot of things that in a more ideal situation, you'd sort of slow things down a bit, figure out, say, how toxic plutonium was, and then come up with the safety guidelines. And so they're doing these experiments that are incredibly dangerous. They call them the tickling the dragon's tail experiment, in which you basically get as close as you can to a chain, uh, to a, a critical mass, to a, to a chain reaction that you're not in control of, and then back away from it. And uh, they did have several accidents, even during the war. Uh, after the war, they had two accidents that actually killed people. But even during the war, they, they, there's in, in their files, they have an amazing write-up of how they're trying to figure out the critical mass of uh, uranium, enriched uranium in water. And it got, got much more radioactive than they expected. And they concluded that everything was fine. It didn't blow up or burn anything down. But one of the hair of the scientists who was working on it did fall out. And you read that in retrospect and you think, wow, that's, that's really not very safe. That's, that's not much margin for error at all. If your hair is falling out, it's a pretty bad sign. So these are just some of the examples. But take those couple examples and multiply them by a thousand, and you, you get a sense for how much unknown there was across the entire uh, edifice of this project. And how much did they know about what this was going to do? The lives it would take, the cities it would level, and the people who would die from radioactive fallout? They knew that it would cause a lot of fire. They knew that it would cause a lot of damage from blast pressure. They had sort of a rough sense of what area would be affected by it. But there were a lot of things they didn't know. Uh, Oppenheimer estimated the casualties far too low. 
he estimated maybe 20,000 people would die at Hiroshima, was more like 100,000. And later he said that, that that bothered him quite a bit to be so wrong. Uh, they dramatically underestimated the effects of radiation. They really thought that basically if you were close enough to be hurt by the radiation, you'd be killed by the blast and the fire anyway, and the radiation wouldn't have uh, a large effect. Uh, they were wrong on that. Uh, and the reason is that, you know, the real life is more complicated than a sort of physical, simple physical simulation. Sometimes you can be in a situation where you somehow survive all of the other effects, but the radiation is the main one you're going to have. And so their later estimates is that maybe 20%, uh, as many as 20% of the deaths were directly attributable to the radiation. Alex Willerstein there from the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. After the war ended, life began to return to some kind of new normal. And for two scientists, they found something special in their labs in the University of Copenhagen. Max von Laue and James Frank were Nobel Prize winning scientists. In 1940, the Nazi troops invaded Denmark. And the Nazis had a rule that no one could own a Nobel Prize after pacifist and critic of the regime, Karl von Ossietzky, won the Peace Prize. Understandably, the two scientists did not want their gold medals confiscated, and their colleague, Hungarian chemist George de Hevesy, had a plan. To hide them by dissolving them in a chemical called aqua regia. Chemist Liliana Fruck told me more about aqua regia. So aqua regia is the mix of nitric acid, concentrated nitric acid, and concentrated hydrochloric acid in a particular ratio. So you would usually have one part of nitric acid and three parts of hydrochloric acid, and then you would get this really powerful acidic mix. And the name stemmed from, it, it means like king's acid, noble acid, because it was used by alchemists as well to dissolve certain materials that would not dissolve in any other uh, acid or solvent. And one of these materials is gold. But is dissolving gold an easy thing to do? This is one of the mixes that is dissolving gold in its form. And the reason for this is that gold is in, in so precious because it's very unreactive. So it can survive treatment with acids. It doesn't oxidize. That means it doesn't react with oxygen. So you would never have a gold ring that will change color with the time. So not many things will dissolve gold at all. And aqua regia is almost the only one that will interact with gold. The other material that interacts with gold is mercury, and you wouldn't like using mercury <laughs> to kind of dissolve it. Yes. Right then, the Nobel Prize medals have been put in this stuff. How do they dissolve? Chemically, what's going on in the jar? Well, there are certain acids that can kind of react in a, in a slow way with noble metals like silver and copper and gold. So nitric acid would actually start interacting with gold, but reaction will stop very quickly. So it's not going to go further to dissolving entire amount of the gold. But if we add hydrochloric acid, this reacts with some of the species that are produced in the first process of interaction between the nitric acid and the gold. And these intermediate species are then strong enough 
to push the equilibrium of the reaction in the direction of the gold dissolution. So what you basically have, you, you have then the reaction which is pushed from elemental gold, which we know as a gold clump, to the ions of the gold, which give out this very nice yellowish-orange solution when they are formed. Seems like pretty potent stuff. Why would a chemist just be mixing this stuff up in a lab, other than thwarting Nazis, of course? So one of the reasons um, where you actually can use this acid as well is to get the gold ions made. And the gold ions are very useful for nanotechnology. So what we do today is we use some of these gold ions which you produce and we use them as a precursors, as a starting materials to make gold nanoparticles. So what we are basically doing is we dissolve the gold into the ions and then we transform these ions again into the gold but now using different procedures so that we can get very tiny uh, structures of gold which have really wonderful properties which have been used for electronics and also in medicine. So it's very useful for kind of uh, producing these gold ions that can be transformed in nanotechnology into the new materials. Eventually, the scientists had to leave Denmark and the jar behind. But it sat there, an unremarkable-looking beaker of liquid, until after the war. But when they got back, they didn't want a jar of potent acid, did they? How can you get the gold back? Uh, so you can, you can have, for example, you can simply... One of the ways how you can uh, have the gold back from the solution is to simply evaporate what you have left. During the reaction... And this is, a, is the beauty of chemistry. During the reaction, if you do the reaction between aqua regia and gold, you will see the bubbles forming. Because the products of these reactions are these gold ions, but also gases. And so the gases will get removed. And you are also left with a little bit of water and with this uh, kind of gold ions. And so you can just simply evaporate the water. And then you are left with, with a really nice powdery compound which is now the salt of gold ions and then it's a pretty simple reaction to turn that gold salt back into pure gold you know this is the power of knowledge how you can hide something also in the plain sight who would have said that this orange solution is basically a gold thank you to liliana frook from the university of cambridge and thank you to all of my other guests This just scratches the surface of all the things we could cover, but I've only got an hour. The science within and because of World War II stretches with us into today, and will continue to stretch out further, and who knows what we might come to know. But the um, the the Second World War, you've gone from spitfires that are doing maybe 300 miles an hour to ones that are doing over 500 miles an hour by the end of the war. They're they're using cannons, they're, they're getting bigger. They're getting they're faster, obviously, much bigger aircraft. It's always good when there is survival. I'm always pleased. Sometimes there was resistance. Sometimes there was the experiment was actually deliberately uh, sabotaged. Uh, but that's always it's always heartening mm. um, when one sees that the experimenter didn't get it all their way. After the war, they went back to their respected 
universities and they took what they learned at Blessley Park and what they learned from each other as well uh, into their work, uh, which then led into early computer science, which was what happened immediately after the war. And they took the lessons that they learned from building these machines in the war into their work. Thank you so much for listening. Join us again next week for more breaking news and groundbreaking science. If you want to get in touch, the email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is sponsored by Rolls-Royce. I'm Adam Murphy. Stay safe, stay well, and we'll see you again soon. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.